play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Kathy Geiswhite. Kathy created the Kathy comic strip that was syndicated in newspapers all across America from 1976 to 2010. And you know who Kathy is, the straight brown hair, the narrow set eyes, chocolate, 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 ack. The comic was based around what was called the four basic guilt groups of life. Food, love, family, and work. And Kathy, the real person, has a new book of essays called 50 Things That Aren't My Fault. Essays from the grown-up years. It's her first big project since the comic strip ended almost a decade ago. Now, if you recall, a lot of the Kathy comic strips focused on dieting, overindulging, and scenes of her in a fitting room trying to squeeze into bathing suits. We are in a time right now where women should, you know, feel wonderful about our beautiful natural shapes, no matter what shape and size we are. We certainly are done with body shaming now. And yet every magazine, you know, has 20 ads about get slim, get trim, you know, lose this, fit into this. So I talk with Louise Adams, a clinical psychologist who focuses on the non-diet approach. To my horror, in my research, I found that literally no diets work. And on a hot summer day, is there anything better than a cone filled with swirly soft serve? I chat with the folks over at Dairy Queen headquarters about their history. All of this is coming up, but first, my conversation with Kathy Geiswhite. Kathy started the Kathy comic strip completely on accident. She wasn't the kid who sat at the kitchen table feverishly drawing out comic strips. She wasn't even an artist. And she wasn't trying to be one. I was at 26 years old. I was a successful uh, writer in an advertising agency and a failure in my relationships. And I would um, spend every evening writing the same sad story in my journal about the confusion I felt at the time. I was um, at the perfect generation in the late 70s that was right between the Betty Crocker role model and the Betty Friedan role model. And I kind of gained a lot of weight on Betty Crocker's chocolate fudge layer cake mix while reading Betty Friedan's The Feminist Manifesto and realizing there was a different way to be. It got just sort of pathetic to write the same exact same things every night. So one night I just drew a scribble of what I looked like sitting there waiting for the wrong guy to call while eating everything in the kitchen and feeling like this confusion of this time. Kathy sent that drawing home to her mom to let her know she was okay and that she was dealing with her life with a sense of humor. And then every time she drew something new, she mailed it home. I couldn't draw. They were just scribbled stick figures. But my mom thought that these little scribble drawings could be a comic strip. Of course, I was humiliated for anybody to see them. I had worked so hard to kind of try to be a powerful, self-respected woman in the business world, which was new for women at that time. And the last thing I would have wanted was somebody to see these drawings that kind of were me at my most vulnerable. 
But mom didn't give up. She researched comic strips, sent me a list of who I should approach in the order I should approach them. So just to appease her mother and to make sure her mom didn't send them in for her, Kathy mailed some of her drawings to the first comic strip syndicate on the list. And they sent me back a contract right away with a letter saying they were sure I would learn how to draw if I had to do it 365 days a year. And that they had wanted to find a comic strip that dealt with how the world was changing for women. Because all the submissions they'd ever seen were from men. Can you even imagine that happening now when everybody wants to be an artist? Everyone's trying to be a writer. Everybody wants their work to be seen nationally and distributed nationally. And this lady comes in with a cold pitch. She has no connection. She can't even draw. She has no experience. She only sends it because her mom made her. And they sent her back a freaking syndication contract and said, you'll learn how to draw if you just keep doing it. It's so crazy. It's crazy. Hello, 1976. The reaction from women immediately was intense and wonderful. Women immediately were writing to me saying, oh, thank God somebody else feels like I do. The comic strip celebrated what are now stereotypes about a certain type of single working woman in her early 30s. Things that now feel very passe to my generation. In one panel, Kathy is surrounded by shoes with the caption, shoes, chocolate for the feet. In another, Kathy stands on a scale in her nightgown. Sweat is flying from her anxiety-ridden face. The caption, a single act. There are a handful of think pieces online painting Kathy Geiswhite as the anti-feminist. What kind of message does it send to the world when your character's main interests are the size of her body, shopping, and finding a man? I was surprised and also delighted to see in the book that you do consider yourself a feminist. Absolutely. I've never liked feeling like somebody wanted to exclude me from being a feminist because I sometimes, you know, ate too much or complained about my weight or worried about um, love or said the wrong thing to the wrong guy at the wrong time. To me, being a feminist is supporting women, believing that women have equal rights, should have an equal voice and be treated exactly as men. And I felt my work has always supported women. And I've always felt like I was a very strong feminist. I just thought I was a feminist with a sense of humor about the ways that we don't always measure up to our ideals. I might find the central topics of the Kathy comic to be a little bit cringeworthy or a little bit old fashioned. But to be completely honest, they are things that I think about that I am too afraid to say out loud in today's culture of Love and accept your body no matter what size it is. I became a teenager in the era of Kate Moss. This was the time when all of the supermodels in the early 90s were super, super bone thin. And I would cut out these pictures from magazines and tape them to my wall, not because I was trying to diet, but just because I thought they were the most beautiful people in the world. And so even now, when most people would probably describe me as thin, I still worry about my weight. And, you know, I regret having late night ice cream. And there were plenty of times when I was single that I would kind of be waiting by the phone, which... It's easier now that there's a cell phone because you don't have to stay in your house to do it. But like you're waiting for some guy to call and you're not supposed to admit any of this now. Like it's anti-feminist to admit this stuff that a lot of us do. And I think that Kathy might make some of us uncomfortable because we see a bit of her in ourselves. Well, and some things we don't even think about, like how my generation liberated women from girdles that like girdles are over trying to constrict the female body into a different shape. It We're done with that. And yet, right now, you know, there's an entire department full of Spanx 
their extra expectations for women, their extra complications for women that add up on us and in us in the course of a day. And at the end of the day, I think leave many of us feeling no matter how powerfully we start the day, leave many of us kind of holding hands with the frozen Girl Scout cookies at the end of the day, because you just feel like everybody else is succeeding in a way that I'm not. Everybody else is feeling better about themselves in a way that I'm not. And you're right. It's just not as acceptable to talk about vulnerabilities at a time when we should so feel like we're all together and all supporting each other. I think it makes women feel more alone. Diet culture is everywhere, especially nowadays on Instagram, where the wording has been changed, but the message is still the same. So now it is called wellness and health eating these sweet potato avocado quinoa bowls and seeing women in their workout clothes. But it's the same as me cutting out my Kate Moss pictures from magazines. When we come back, I chat with clinical psychologist Louise Adams. She works with people looking to eliminate diets completely from their lives, and she teaches them how to eat intuitively again. We'll explain what that means. And of course, we must know Kathy's last meal. That is coming up later in the episode. We'll be right back. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. The Kathy comic full of diets and chocolate binge eating got us thinking. Were the crazy diets of the 70s and 80s, like the grapefruit diet or the cabbage soup diet, any different than the diet trends of today, like Whole30 and keto? I called up Louise Adams, a clinical psychologist based in Sydney, Australia, who founded Treat Yourself Well Sydney. She also co-authored the Non-Diet Approach Handbook for Psychologists and Counselors. Well, here's a diet tip straight from the 70s. Sugar keeps your energy up and your appetite down. So if you have a cookie before every meal, you're going to lose weight. 
How's that? I love this diet. Go on. (laughs) We've got to look at who's actually promoting the diets because guess who's promoting the cookie diet? It's the sugar industry. (laughs) And there was also the milk diet. Have milk every day for a week and lose, you know, however many pounds. And guess who sponsored that? That was the dairy industry. So... We laugh at these diets and they seem ridiculous, but for some reason, we think that the current diet trends are legit. Like a lot of people are doing keto. Uh, I always over-enunciate that word, keto. Basically, I guess you're cutting out all carbohydrates. Paleo is really big. Are these diets any different than the fad diets of the 70s, 80s, 90s that we like to make fun of? No, they're literally no different. So the whole thing started in the 70s with um, discovering the link between fat intake and heart attacks. And so the recommendations suddenly became about everything needs to be low fat, which replaced fat with sugar, like diet yogurt, for example. You, you just see everything repackaged and happening over and over again. So there's many diets from the 70s that are also basically paleo or low-carb diet. They're just called things that are quite different. We had Atkins in the 90s. And I reckon like in another five years, we'll be all the way back to high carbohydrate intake or, you know, again, recommending cookies. It's just going to keep on going. You live in Australia and you're naming all these diets that were also fads in the United States. It's fascinating to me that these things travel all the way around the world. I know. You guys lead the way. And then we tend to get an Australian guru who really promotes and keeps that going. At the moment with the paleo thing, we've got this guy called Paleo Pete. (laughs) (laughs) So psychologically, why do people go for these diets that are really restrictive that, in my opinion, it seems harder to cut out all carbs, all sugar, all dairy than to just eat a balanced diet? Why do people jump on these bandwagons? Well, we can't forget that from almost the moment that we're born, we're sold the idea that we can't trust our bodies. And especially if we're female, that we need to always make them smaller. We're swimming in this like soup all the time of all of this messaging. And so the diet industry, the weight loss industry is very good at profiting and preying on those kinds of insecurities. And essentially what we're told is you can't trust your normal appetite. Uh, You need an expert to come in and fix your so-called, you know, incorrect body and shrink it and make it smaller. Lots of the time when people actually come to see me, they are diet fatigued. You know, they've just had enough and they can't go on another diet, even if they feel like they should. I guess I start with people by just sort of getting them to open their eyes and see where dieting and pursuing changing your body really has got you. Um, And then I start with a really simple concept, which is hunger and trying to understand how you know when you're hungry. And isn't that an interesting and simple question? Because it's one of our most basic instincts. And yet diet culture really teaches us to ignore hunger. Or if we get hungry, What does diet culture say? Oh, put it off, push it back, have a glass of water, have some coffee, get rid of that hunger. The work that I do is really about helping people to reconnect with that unaffected wisdom and get back to intuitive eating stuff. All of this starts when you're just a little kid. Small children only eat when they're hungry and they stop when they're full. But if you grew up in a household where you had to clear your plate, you were stuck at the table until you finished everything, you were being trained not to listen to your body You were being trained to overeat, which I notice this now in my own diet, like when I can't stop eating because my parents, it's my parents' fault. I hate my parents. (laughs) The non-diet approach, which Louise subscribes to and teaches her clients about, is all about getting back to those natural instincts. 
It's called intuitive eating. For me personally, it had a huge impact because believe it or not, in preparation to open my private practice, I decided to go on a diet (laughs) and lose X amount of kilos. I did Jenny Craig. And then I thought, okay, now I can open my practice because I've lost X amount of kilos. How, How wacky is that? So alongside my research, I was also regaining the weight and found out I'm never going on a diet again. And it's been fantastic. (laughs) Did you feel like you had to be, quote, presentable to your clients in a certain way to be taken seriously? Or That's such an example of um, how women are schooled to think. I really thought that I would be more credible if I was smaller, which is ridiculous. But I couldn't see it at that time. And I see women now, you know, every week who will say similar things like I want to get a job, I want to go back into the workforce, but I've got to lose weight first. Or I want to go dating and I want to meet someone, but I've got to lose weight first. Or I want to go on a holiday, but I've got to lose weight first. So there's this constant preoccupation with needing to change ourselves before we live a meaningful life. If you're looking to remove diet culture from your world and to find health at any size, Louise says go on Instagram and just stop following anybody who makes you feel bad about the way you look. All right, here we are. We're going to the second commercial break and we still don't know Kathy's last meal because I'm changing it up, you guys. It's like when you think I'm going to zig, I zag. So when we come back from break, we are going to find out what Kathy's last meal would be. When I was a kid on Sunday morning and the paper would come, I would, as a lot of kids would do, I would pull out the Sunday comic section. Um, I don't remember actually enjoying them that much. I never thought they were very funny, but it was like the only thing in the newspaper that a kid would read. And it made me feel adult to have my section of the paper when I was sitting at the table. So I was thinking about comic strips and I suddenly realized that so many of the central characters of these comic strips we all grew up with have this really strong connection to food. So... What is Garfield known for, Aaron Mason? Lasagna. Yeah, everybody puts Garfield and lasagna together. In the Blondie comic strip, the character Dagwood Bumstead constructed so many of these mile-high sandwiches with cold cuts and cheese and veggies, but also I Google imaged it, and there is an entire lobster, a layer of peas, (laughs) a whole head on fish, and then, of course, it's topped with that little olive on a toothpick on the top. So this kind of sandwich is now called a Dagwood in both popular culture and in some dictionaries. Yogi Bear, of course, is famous for his picnic basket. Popeye loves spinach. Wimpy loves burgers. And for Kathy, it's all about chocolate. 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 Chocolate in all forms. Women have an intense relationship with chocolate. It's an understanding of chocolate. Chocolate that's given as a gift counts differently. It was a gift, so those calories count differently. Many, many ways that we process our feelings about chocolate. Are you a chocoholic? Um... I can't have it in my house. That's the truth of it. And my worst chocolate is the most innocent. Frozen M&Ms are like my insanity. They're so innocent and they're so good. And you just like can't, I can't stop. She said she started putting them in the freezer so she wouldn't eat so many. And then her plan backfired. And now she prefers them frozen. What would you choose for your last meal? Soft serve vanilla ice cream with chocolate sauce on top, period. That's like my perfect food. That is my ultimate comfort food. My mother now is 97 years old. I commute back and forth across the country to see her a lot. And every single time I'm there, 
we have one meal where we have a hot fudge sundae for lunch. It's not made with soft serve, but it's made with vanilla ice cream, which is close. It's from my childhood. It's my favorite food memory. And now in my adulthood with my mom, it's like one of my very, very favorite things I do with my mom is just go have hot fudge sundaes for lunch. Why soft serve over the hard packed ice cream? <laughs> I don't know. It's easier to swallow. What is that? Why is that more comforting? I don't know. It's like drinking a smoothie versus eating a salad, you know, not that you have to chew ice cream, but it's, it's different. It's soft serve. And you know, you've gotten really lazy when, you know, you want to eat the easiest ice cream to swallow. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could call it lazy or you could call it efficient, couldn't you? <laughs> you you know, have Dairy Queen there? Uh-huh. My very favorite meal in life would be an ice cream cone made of Dairy Queen vanilla ice cream and dipped in that chocolate that turns crunchy on the outside. That's that's like perfect. That's heaven. For her last meal, Kathy Geiswhite wants a chocolate-dipped vanilla soft-serve cone from Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen was founded on that soft-serve cone. As the story goes, in the late 1930s, a guy named John Fremont Grandpa McCullough like the coolest name I've ever heard. <laughs> and his son, Bradley, were eating ice cream. And like so many of us did when we were kids, Bradley was stirring up his ice cream and turning it into melty ice cream soup because he liked the soft, melty texture as opposed to the freezing cold, hard-packed ice cream. And Grandpa, which is what I'm going to call him for the rest of the episode, was like, I smell business. So in 1938, Grandpa developed a soft-serve formula and convinced his friend, Sherb Noble, because everyone in this story has a cool name, to sell their product in Sherb's ice cream store. I'm going to let Mary Joyce finish up the rest of the story. She's the director of product development at Dairy Queen. How they started this was by they having a 10-cent trial sale at a walk-up ice cream store. And within two hours, they had sold 1,600 servings. So they said, hey, I think we have something here. And from there, it went gangbusters after 1941, after World War II. It went from 100 stores in 1947 to 1,400 and plus in 1950, and all the way up to today, where we have 7,000 restaurants throughout the United States and in 24 different countries. Like so many foods on this show, not just one person claimed to have invented it. Dairy Queen says they invented soft serve. Carvel says they invented soft serve. There's a lot of rumors that former UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher helped invent soft serve back when she worked as a chemist at a food manufacturer in the early 40s. I did not expect a Margaret Thatcher (laughs) trivia fact. Again, when you think we're going to zig, we zag. (laughs) So I wanted to know what the difference is between hard-packed ice cream that you have to scoop up with a scooper and soft serve that comes swirling out of the machine. And I learned that legally, soft serve cannot be called ice cream. Ice cream must have 10% butter fat. Soft serve only has 5%, which means it's low fat. It's like a diet food. (laughs) And the process of making soft serve is different. Hard packed ice cream gets frozen down to zero degrees. But soft serve is made at 18 degrees, which keeps it creamier. So the ice crystals that are in the soft serve are much smaller, so that reacts as a much smoother texture on your tongue. Because with hard-packed ice cream, you're going to get all these crystals that keep building up when it's frozen down to those very low temperatures, and then you don't have as much of a smooth texture on your tongue. And when you have that smooth texture, you also can taste that wonderful vanilla. And that is the key to what makes our soft serve great, is our vanilla. It's our signature. 
And you can't make soft serve without a special machine. And we also add less air to it than you get with a hard pack ice cream. So it's very similar to what goes into making hard pack ice cream, but it's very unique in the essence that we have some special ingredients in there so that you can have this ice cream come out literally in 10 minutes through the machine at the very most. But you can't say what those ingredients are. No, those are secrets. We have a special formula, and it is actually locked up in a vault because it is our formula and only our formula. It's our Dairy Queen formula. The cone is our signature, right? As you'll see, the curl on the top of our cone, that is actually trademarked. Everybody doesn't really know that, but get the two balls of softer with the curl on top is our trademark. Kathy wants a chocolate-dipped cone for her last meal. And if you want to learn about the magic shell that gets all hard on the outside of ice cream and how to make it at home, it's super easy. Go back to the Isaac Mizrahi episode. Now, today, the blizzard is the most popular treat at Dairy Queen. That was invented in the 1990s. But Dairy Queen was founded on that vanilla soft-serve cone. What's the history behind the name Dairy Queen? Mr. McCullen thought that the cow was the queen, and that's how it became the Dairy Queen. Isn't that cute? And that was Kathy Geiswhite's last meal. Where did Ack come from? Ack! It's just exactly what it, <laughs> it's what it feels like when I can't stand anything. I mean, isn't that sort of what you say? It's like the letter version of what the feeling is, where it's just, Ack! Can't take it. It's that feeling of how life seems to work differently for everybody else than it works for me. Was that something that you said out loud and is that why you incorporated it into the comic or is that kind of like a sound in your head? <laughs> I think it's both. <laughs> I think it's both. Pick up Kathy's book, 50 Things That Aren't My Fault, Essays from the Grown-Up Years. It's out now. Thanks to clinical psychologist Louise Adams. You can find her at treatyourselfwell.com.au. And thanks to Mary Joyce over at Dairy Queen. I just had my very first peanut buster parfait. We were driving home from camping and hiking. And like, there's always a Dairy Queen once you finally hit civilization. And that, my friend, that is a good treat. Have you had that? No, I'm not a peanut butter guy. It's not peanut butter. Hmm. It's peanut buster. Okay. Yeah, so it's the vanilla soft serve, and then there's layers of hot fudge. It's kind of like making the perfect nachos. Like, they put some on the bottom, some in the middle, and some on the top. And then there's just a bunch of crushed, salted Spanish peanuts. Ooh. So you get, like, the creamy and the crunchy and the salty and the sweet. I just did that really annoying girlfriend thing where I was like, I'm just going to have a bite. And then I ate (laughs) at least half of it to three quarters. So... Don't take me on a trip. And coming up next on your last meal in two weeks, director Lynn Shelton's going to be on the show. Lynn has a brand new movie out right now in theaters. It stars Mark Marin. It's called Sword of Trust. It's very funny. It's getting great reviews. Go see it. And then you'll be extra excited to hear about Lynn on the podcast. This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded by Aaron Mason, and theme music by Prom Queen. Make sure to follow along on Instagram. I'm your last meal podcast. And please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps the podcast, podcast, podcast. So many times I need a thesaurus. Until next time, I'm Rachel Bell, and this is your last meal. Give me ack. Ack!